Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Bristol Law Reviews podcast. Today we have a feisty episode for you to conclude our three-part episode exploration of populism. We will be looking at the UK this time and the Miller cases, which concern the contentious Brexit issue. Why is this episode feisty, you may ask? Well, because I tend to disagree with the views of my guests on particularly Miller too. With that said, my guest today is another Robert, Robert Craig, lecturer of public law at the University of Bristol. Hello, Robert. So to connect to the discussions of populism in the previous episodes, I wanted to start with asking this. Where does legitimacy in the UK constitutional order come from? Ultimately, all constitutional orders require legitimacy in one form or another in order to function. So where does the legitimacy to which the UK constitution is accountable lie? Um, I think the starting point has got to be the fact that we're a democracy. So in the end, I think there's a clear uh, linkage between the the voting um, public and the systems, institutions, structures, and and ultimately, uh, or, or supremely perhaps, um, the supreme part of the constitution, parliament. Because, but don't forget, we don't just elect parliaments in general elections; we elect the government as well, right? Because um, because the the government is 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 almost always the party that wins the, the most votes. So there's a sense that the, the vast swathes of, of Whitehall and Westminster are accountable and are elected by the people. And so uh, the constitution, which sort of underpins that, gains its legitimacy and consent from the fact that the people have elected the people who run the country. I think that this leads well into an introduction to the distinction between the political and the legal constitutions. I wanted to ask you, how are they different? And is the British constitution really a contest between the legal and political constitutions? The, the British constitution is still uh, um, known as being a political constitution. That links to the to the constitutional issues we just discussed in terms of legitimacy, because the political constitution is fundamentally about the fact that we have democratically elected politicians who are who are basically in charge of the core and key institutions. This applies even to the institution of the crown, because decisions made by uh, the monarch would you encompass a number of important uh, powers known as prerogative powers are done on the advice of the government. They're done on the advice of the prime minister. So that even the most seemingly undemocratic aspect of the constitution uh, and of the sort of institutional institutional structure of the United Kingdom is infused with that democratic aspect whereby the, the important decisions, almost all decisions, basically, are made by elected and accountable politicians. So that links back to the previous point about legitimacy, even the bit that looks the most illegitimate, the, the crown and the hereditary elements, those are all um, superficial. And one of the core things to understand about the political constitution is that the there is two levels. There is, it's very British in many ways, in that there's a sort of, Front, and then there's the sort of working aspect, or as Badger called it, there's the dignified and the efficient parts of the constitution. The dignified is represented by 
the monarch, by the crown, by the institutions, by the sort of flummery of the European constitution. But what, what's really going on is behind that, where the real action is going on. And that's where the political constitution is really um, important, because although it looks as though the queen or the king uh, runs the country, it's completely untrue. It's actually run by the prime minister and the government. And the understanding that dichotomy between dignified and efficient goes a long way to explaining the political constitution. Now, you asked about the political and the legal constitution, so I'm segueing from, from those structural and institutional elements to what's really going on. It's important to understand that, that the political and legal constitution is frequently held up as a sort of dichotomy as like in competition. But every political constitution respects the law. It respects the fact that judicial review allows the courts or, or, or requires the courts, I should say, as a duty to ensure that the government and local authorities and public bodies in general operate within the law. So there's no political constitutionalist who doesn't believe in judicial review, who doesn't think that law is important. Equally, legal constitutionalists take a, a more, as, as the word might, you might expect, a more legalistic approach to how the, the constitution works, or in their case should work, but no legal constitutionalist disbelieves in votes of no confidence in Parliament, which is the ultimate expression of the political constitution. They all believe in that. No legal constitutionalist thinks that the courts should interfere with the vote of no confidence, for example, right? So the dichotomy that's put between political legal constitutions, constitutionalists, if you like, is not a matter of binary, it's a matter of degree. So a political constitutionalist would resist encroachments by the courts, by judicial review and equivalent, into the political sphere more than a legal constitutionalist who would want to see things like a codified legal constitution with perhaps judicial supervision of, of more areas than currently exist. But it's a debate. It's not a binary. There isn't like a winner and a loser. The, the, there, is a, there is a constant sort of dialectic between those. And it will be fair to say that we have seen increased legal supervision of areas you wouldn't historically have expected. And the Miller II case is probably the paradigm example of that in terms of the extension of judicial supervision in areas that would be, to put it mildly, unexpected. Yeah, building on that, ultimately the political constitution was introduced to us by Griffith in his Corley lecture. He argued that the constitution in the UK was political and that the elected parliament was supreme and parliament was accountable to the people. Ultimately, in the UK, even things such as rights are a question for Parliament, as ultimately all institutions are fallible to misjudgment, but at least Parliaments can be removed. It would thus be argued that political judgments by judges are no less political. However, it has been argued that Griffith was not making a normative argument for a certain constitutional arrangement, but merely describing the constitutional arrangement in the UK as he saw it. I personally like connecting Griffith's lecture to the broader LSE tradition which reimagined law and its role in society, notably with Greenlight theorists arguing that law and politics are connected, and not distinct scientists that must be kept separate like the traditional Dicinian red-light theorists did. They argue that law's role was not as a red-light to politicians' overreach, but as a tool to reach administrative goals. I believe that the legal and political constitutions really are not in conflict, but rather that they complement and protect each other. 
Firstly, I do not even see the legal constitution as undemocratic, but a different conception of democracy. In continental Europe, the experience of fascist capture of the political institutions showed that democracy needed guarantors in the form of universal rights protected by the courts. So I don't think politics and law should be compartmentalized. They do connect. I think, I think the first thing to say is that the concept of rights and the way that Griffiths talks about it is, I think, it, well, the LSE tradition of a functionalist kind of uh, analysis of how things actually work is, is where Griffiths comes from. But, it, but, but and, and his arguments about the protection of rights by Parliament is, yeah, I would say that's on the sort of more, or quite strongly on the sort of political constitutionalist side of the debate. What characterizes the legal constitutionalists, and I think you alluded to this slightly, is that rights for them, and it sort of goes back to Ronald Dawkins, are better protected by the courts. So that leads to the kind of tension and conflict we've seen between legal and political constitutionalism, precisely because if you protect rights with, um, by, by the courts, that sets up tension with purely democratic decision-making. Now, so Griffiths is quite clear that he thought rights are better protected by parliamentary processes. And, and we saw some of that with the Human Rights Act because of the Joint Committee on Human Rights, which is supposed to look at um, rights issues within parliament. But the tension comes when the more you go down the road of saying that rights are actually exclusively or better looked at by the courts and the courts understand rights and politicians don't. Once you go down that road, then you start to see the real tensions potentially building up between parliament and the idea of judicially enforced rights. And that's the point at which we're sort of, where, where the Human Rights Act had such a huge, huge impact. Now, one of the strong, one of the arguments that is strongly put forward by legal constitutionalists is that you alluded to this, in other countries, fascism or, or, or extreme uh, problematic elements taking over parliamentary processes or parliaments requires a counterbalancing force, you know, this is the argument, from the judiciary, and rights is the way to do that because rights are individual, whereas, you know, forces that can take over systems tend to be more populist in a negative sense, if that's the way you're sort of gently leading towards. Now, I, partic I am particularly um, negative, again, I'm against that argument for a number of reasons. But the primary reason why I have a, have a slight problem with the idea of judicial sort of backstop as a sort of last resort to protect individual rights against any fascist or quasi-fascist regime is that it's nonsense. Because when, in my view, because were there to be a situation where extreme forces were managed to managed to take over the idea that judges are going to stop them is for the birds in my view because judges in the end have to sort of work with the system that they're in up to a point and if they don't and they can't i don't think they're going to be able to stop in a huge scaled revolt in that because it would be revolutionary in that sense I think that if the legal constitution is working, the point at which a standoff between the courts and rogue government occurs would never arise in the first place. The courts would be central in constructing the relationships and system in which they quote-unquote work. 
so that such a revolutionary moment cannot occur. Ultimately, in the legal constitution, this legal backstop, this protection by the courts would not be manifested by sudden standoff in which the courts strike down an autocratic move by government. Rather, there would be a tradition of court action whereby the court builds its legitimacy to challenge autocracy. But all constitutions have both legal and political elements. No constitution is purely one or the other. It is just that different elements are emphasized in different places. That is because whatever a written document may say, the constitution is what happens. The real weakness of an idea of a supreme codified constitution, as you alluded to, is that it's got to have that political element. And, and in fact, uh, I think what that what what written codified constitutions do is they sort of slow down the ability of a society to adapt and change over time, and uh, and that can be that can have benefits, but it can also have serious disbenefits. Because for me, the the problem I have with a codified constitution is the sheer arrogance of, of thinking that in one generation you know better than future generations what is best for them. The Victorians weren't even arrogant enough to do that, and they built an entire empire. And they never built a, uh, wrote a single codified constitution for the UK because they understood, I think, that, that times change, people change, and the idea that you can outsource judges uh, to maintain a previous generation's viewpoint over later generations' political decision-making is a serious problem that I have, and it's also deeply undemocratic. I think that the Miller cases are a perfect way to discuss the way that the British Constitution functions, so I'll move our discussion in that direction. So, the first Miller case concerned the government using the treaty-making prerogative power in order to trigger Article 50, thus beginning the process of leaving the EU, but they wanted to trigger Article 50 without Parliament's consent. The government argued that it had the authority to trigger this article, whilst the counter-argument was that by doing so, the government would be making a change to domestic law without Parliament's approval, which could not be allowed, as EU law and rights would become ineffective. The second Miller case concerned prerogative powers again, but this time the use of the prerogative to prorogue Parliament, i.e. end a parliamentary sanction and constitute a period in which Parliament does not sit. In this case, the proroguing of Parliament for five weeks, which was a suspiciously long time in the lead-up to the Brexit deadline, was argued to be undermining the Parliament's ability to scrutinize the government's Brexit negotiations. So how do you interpret the Miller cases? So I don't, I don't lump them together. Um, I, I treat them very separately. So the Miller one case, to me, um, it was fairly clear, and I watched all of the hearings in the High Court and in the Supreme Court, that um, the Miller one case, the High Court was unanimous. There was three very senior judges, Lord Chief Justice, Master of the Rolls, and uh, Lord Justice Sales. Um, so it looked like a high court decision, but it was really, it, it felt very much like a court of appeal decision, like they'd leapfrogged it, but let's leave that to one side. The, the high court decision in, in the Miller 1 case focused a lot on the idea of rights. And they pointed out, and it was a, a concession made by counsel for the government in the high court, which was sort of retracted in the Supreme Court by the, by the different barrister, that some rights would be lost on leaving the European Union. 
And there's quite a lot of clear case law saying before the Miller case that you can't use deprogative to um, override or take away legislation. Uh, and that includes legislation that confers rights. And the question was whether or not exercising the prerogative in this way would result in losing those rights or overriding legislation. And I thought that the, not only the majority of the Supreme Court, but also the unanimous High Court's argument that exercising the prerogative in this way would inevitably lead to the loss of certain rights and to the ineffectiveness of some legislation. In other words, they would frustrate the intention of Parliament to confer those rights or to implement certain legal rules, i.e. European law coming through the ECA. The inevitability of the frustration of Parliament's intention, if we left the European Union by triggering Article 50 in that inevitable process, meant that it was quite clear that that exercise of prerogative would frustrate the intention of Parliament, which had been laid down for quite a long time, that was unlawful. And the clearest, and to me, the, the, the closest and clearest example of a precedent was the case of Laker Airways. Because in Laker Airways, the uh, Laker had a, a right to, uh, they secured a right, a landing rights in the United Kingdom under the Civil Aviation Act. And then the flip side of that, they had landing rights in the United States under the Bermuda Treaty, using the treaty power, the prerogative power. And what happened was, the new government came in that was um, hostile to Laker Airways because they were um, trade union British Airways had a lot of power in the Labour Party. And they asked the American president not to give landing rights to Laker Airways, to use, or they used the prerogative, in other words, to take away the rights um, and to take away the, and to render nugatory, to render ineffective the landing rights in the United Kingdom that were statutory. And so the, the use of the prerogative to take away Laker's ability to fly, to fly from the US to the UK was said by Lord Denning in the court in the Court of Appeal to be by a sidewind to be making the law the legislation ineffective. And that to me was an exact analogy for the Miller One case. The prerogative would be used by the government to in effect take away rights that had been conferred by Parliament, contrary to Parliament's intention, and frustrating that intention. And so it seemed to me that was uh, quite an easy um, case in some ways. And in fact, Lord Panic. Uh, in the High Court, when that concession was made by the government that some rights would be lost, he stood up and the first thing he said in his reply is, I only need to show one right is lost and I win the case. And he won a unanimous decision. Now, in the Supreme Court, the, the barrister for the government nuanced that argument a bit. And, and, the, and Lord Reid is sort of the, the, the lead dissenting judgment in the first Miller case. So if I turn to Lord Reid, Lord Reid's dissent, um, which is, to be fair, it gets a lot of um, respect from very senior academics, some very senior academics. So it has divided the community. It's not an open and shut situation. I happen to be on the side of thinking that the High Court and the majority of the Supreme Court uh, were correct. Um, although I'm, the reasoning uh, is 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 complex in some areas. Lord Reed's his dissent is predicated on the idea that. The machinery of the European Communities Act is actually independent of the decision whether or not to be in or out of the EU in the sense that the ECA does not make it clear in his view that the intention of Parliament is to be in the EU. 
to me, that conflates entering and exiting, and they're not necessarily the same. So it's not the intention of Parliament that uh, on the passing of the Act, when it was passed, that it should immediately be effective. It wasn't the intention. But that's not the same as saying that uh, once we've entered the European Union, the government had this unilateral ability to withdraw the UK from the European Union without uh, any further legislative action. And it seems to me that the frustration principle that I've outlined through Luca Airways is a difficult one for Lord Reid and supporters of that side of the argument to deal with. And I've yet to see any academic discussion dealing with the Laker case and why the Laker case is wrong or distinguishable. That's Miller 1, and I take, I take the firm view that Miller 1 is correctly decided, and I don't regard it as being an intervention by the courts in the political realm, for the very simple reason that the um, decision to trigger Article 50 is a matter of law. It is a, 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 a matter of law that deals with the relationship between statute and prerogative, and there's a lot of previous case law saying that the prerogative is limited. It cannot be used in a way that frustrates the intention of Parliament. And um, just a final point on this, there was a, a different act, the European Parliamentary Elections Act 2002, which gives everyone in the UK, uh, to UK citizens, the right to vote in EU elections. And uh, that right was not qualified in any way, and it would inevitably be lost if we triggered exit from Article 50, uh, using Article 50. And how is Miller too different? Miller's two case is quite different. For a start, there's no statute involved. Okay, so it's not one of these situations where there's an where there's an interaction between statute and prerogative, where the law is clear that prerogative cannot be used to frustrate the intention of Parliament, and the courts can step in to police the fact that statutes must be obeyed. Okay, so that's clear law. It's really basic law, and it's a basic chasm, a dichotomy that separates the Miller 1 type situation where there's a prerogative and a statute situation, and the Miller 2 situation where there's only a prerogative at stake and there's no statute. So the judges, if they're intervening in a, in a situation where there's only prerogative at stake, do not have the um, protection, if you like, but what well, is one way of putting it, but they do not have the imprimatur. They do not have the, um, they're not basically defending a statutory uh, requirements and the intention of the Parliament clearly set out in that statute. That makes it much easier when there's a statute for the judges to say, well, hang on, that particular exercise of prerogative cannot be lawful because you're breaching the intention of Parliament, which is obviously the supreme and you know the most important legal powers or law in the country. So it's a very, very different scenario, and it's really important not to conflate the two situations. Now, the courts, historically, uh, of course, had nothing to do with royal prerogative exercise because it's an exercise by the government. It's next to what? By the crown, in fact. Okay? And, um, and because it's an exercise of power by the government, by the crown, uh, literally prerogative, the courts were always extremely uh, nervous about uh, judicial review. In fact, they refused to do it. And they refused to do it because, historically, because they're the Queen's courts or the King's courts. And therefore, that came from the prerogative of justice, which was itself a prerogative. And therefore, the, the idea that they could, they could challenge or, or, or deny an exercise of that prerogative power, which was done by the government, was absolutely forbidden. It was just never going to happen. And that changed. 
quite a long time ago, um, when when in 1984, uh, it's not that long ago, but it's in, in a thousand year history, but it's quite a long time ago, really, when the courts decided that they could they could judicially review the exercise of the prerogative. That's got to be distinguished, of course, from previous situations where the prerogative has been supposedly exercised, but that prerogative didn't exist. But the really seminal case, the sort of transformational case, was in 1984 where the court said that just because a, legal, a, a power of the legal power of the executive was derived from prerogative rather than from statute, there was no logical reason why there should be a difference in whether they could be reviewed on legal grounds, not on the merits, but on legal grounds. And the standard legal grounds are that it's illegal or it's irrational or procedurally improper. And the court said that there was no logical reason why just because it was prerogative sourced it should be treated differently to if it was statutory source power of the executive. And that was the moment when it was decided that some prerogative powers could be judicially reviewed. But what they also said in that case is that some prerogative powers would not be reviewable. And the, re the ones they chose to be reviewable, they, there was a test that was developed in a later case called Everett. So was it high policy decision or mere administrative decision. And you can sort of understand why low or administrative properties could be reviewable because it's like passports are a good example. Um, so the provision of passports, which was the, happened in Everett, the court was like, well, this is just an administrative procedure. And if you don't give someone a right to put their side of the case, for example, standard procedure, um, that's something the judges feel very confident that that's a breach of, of procedural fairness or natural justice. And there's no real reason why a, mere, like a passport's not a big controversial political issue. There's no reason why that shouldn't be judicially reviewable like any statutory power you might have that should be judicially reviewable. So they drew that distinction between high policy decisions and mere administrative decisions. The Miller II case, as, as we mentioned at the beginning, was about a prorogation of parliament. Now, technically, and some people argue this, prorogation had never been judicially reviewed before, so it was a it was a moot question. It was an open question whether or not it could be reviewed. But my position is that the reason it had never been reviewed before, because it had been used in highly political ways before to have a session of a few days and things like that for various reasons historically, as Martin Lachlan pointed out uh, recently. Um, the reason it had never been reviewed before, in my opinion, was because it was obviously a high policy. Now, in this particular case, even if you could make a case or maybe prorogation isn't always a high policy, in this particular scenario, it was about as high policy as it got. It was the most politically controversial decision made by the government, probably in the whole Brexit process, with the exception maybe of the Article 50 triggering itself. They're about the same kind of uh, pressure. But there was it, this was controversial for a number of reasons and at a number of levels. It was controversial because it... Um, interfered in decisions made by the government who were in negotiations with the European Union. The European Union were watching what the British government were doing closely. They were watching whether Parliament could stop them or delay it because it changed their negotiating position. So at a minimum, and this is what the High Court was saying in, when they dismissed this case uh, unanimously, the prerogative power, which is intimately connected with dissolution of Parliament, um, because they both have the same sort of effects, suspending or ending a, a parliament. Uh, where dissolution of parliament was specifically listed in GCHQ as one of the examples of a prerogative that was absolutely not open to judicial review, 
It was one of the sort of uh, Everett high policy decision types that we, that we saw in Everett later. Dissolution of Parliament is always sort of a paradigm example. And prorogation is sort of very closely linked to dissolution. So the High Court's argument was that not only was it um, uh, not appropriate for them to get involved in such a, a sort of high, highly contentious political situation, but actually they thought that it was sufficient, it was very similar to dissolution and therefore was within the, the test for high policy that meant it was non-justiciable. The Supreme Court took a very different approach. They, they said there were two uh, reasons why it was unlawful for the government to prorogue parliament in this situation. The first, they said, was the sovereignty of parliament. And, and the second was um, that prorogation prevented accountability of the government to Parliament for its decision. The, the problem I have with both those arguments is that parliamentary sovereignty is expressed through a statute. And as I said at the beginning, there is no statute involved in this case. So the idea that it affected parliamentary sovereignty in the sense of what sovereignty is, as far as I understood it, always meant, which is what did Parliament's intentions as expressed in a statute mean, is a non-starter as an argument. I, I don't even understand how it gets off the ground uh, as an argument for saying that parliamentary sovereignty was somehow affected. I, I don't even understand it. What it seems to be saying that parliament cannot, uh, the, the prerogative cannot be used to frustrate a hypothetical future act of parliament that hasn't been passed yet, uh, which might be passed. And therefore, the parliamentary sovereignty means that you can't have a suspension of parliament or prorogation of parliament. For a period of time because it might stop parliament passing some hypothetical future act or something and i wrote that argument before the military two case even started in a blog on the uk cla um which people can look at if they want to have a, a longer version of the argument set out the second argument they put forward was that it would prevent accountability and that was to do with the idea that if the government wouldn't be asked questions in parliament which is one of parliament's roles is to question the government during the period of prorogation that makes no sense to me either, because that's a political issue uh, for which the government is accountable. And not only that, when the government announced the prorogation, it allowed a week, which in which time, before the prorogation took effect, the, the opposition could have brought a vote of no confidence to get rid of the government if they thought the government's decision, which was a highly political central decision to their policy, was inappropriate. They could have brought it down and had uh, and installed an alternative government if they wished by choosing a different slate if they had a majority. The fact that they left that time to do that is the expression of the political constitution. And this is what's caused the backlash to the military decision in the Supreme Court. Because by saying or veto or voiding, by, by rendering the prorogation void, so Parliament sprang back into life in some way the next day, the court said effectively, in, in my view, legalized in a funny kind of way a convention or not the convention per se but the requirement that the government be held to account by backbench mps now that caused consternation from my understanding not just amongst government mps but backbench mps because article 9 of the bill of rights 1689 says that parliament may not question any proceedings in parliament now this looks just from a political point of view, like an interference in proceedings in Parliament. That's, a, that's what's caused a certain amount of concern with the military decision. Because, for example, um, the, dissolute, the prorogation of Parliament 
um, is a process, is a procedure, it's a proceedings within Parliament. And after the Supreme Court decision, they had to retrospectively change the votes and proceedings of Parliament to reflect the fact that it hadn't been prorogued, despite the fact that it was recorded as such in the official votes and proceedings. To me, this, and they also had to issue royal assent again for an act of Parliament that was given royal assent in the same proceedings as the prorogation. It was all, it was all put together because it's all done by the same procedure. And so they were amalgamated together. So they had to re-give royal assent. Now, some people just say, oh, the, the second royal assent doesn't really count. The first one was perfectly valid. It didn't actually affect it. They were just making sure there was no confusion. But I think it's, that that raises very serious concerns. And that very serious concerns include the fact that the Supreme Court said that the commissioners who carried out the prorogation walked into Parliament with a blank sheet of paper, effectively. So they thought they were reading out legal words. They thought they were doing that. But they weren't because it was void from the beginning. It was void because the advice given to the monarch to prorogue was held to be void. Therefore, it didn't. It was ab initio. It was void from the beginning, which meant the, commission, the Queen's uh, decision to prorogue was void, and therefore the commissioner's um, decision or uh, going through the process of proroguing parliament was also void. And the, the argument is that, oh, it's only really the, the government's decision that's been struck down, therefore it's not interfering in parliament. But I'm, I'm afraid I regard all those stages as being linked, linked like umbilically linked. So what the judges had effectively done was they had, and even using the phrase a blank sheet of paper within parliament, is to interfere in the proceedings in Parliament. And that is a very, very serious um, situation and, uh, and, and is especially serious for me because the political constitution was already working. Not only had that one week I said at the beginning been given so that a vote of no confidence could be brought, but also various amendments have been made to uh, an act to do with Northern Ireland that required Parliament to sit again on various dates um, in the following few weeks. And there was an act that required the government to extend the Brexit process until uh, for a few more months, um, all of which meant that there was no chance of, the, of, uh, of there being zero, of being no further parliamentary uh, involvement between that date of the prorogation and ex-Brexit day. So when you put all those factors together, you can see why the government was so shocked by the decision of the Supreme Court and the fact that it was unanimous, which also is very surprising given the strength of the High Court decision and the seniority of the judges in the High Court who made the decision the other way, um, that it was unanimous. Again, we don't know why or how these these processes happen within uh, judicial bodies, but it was extremely surprising that there was no dissent in the Supreme Court over a decision that was so ropey uh, in its justification and in its reasoning, in my view. I think that the point of I the idea of interfering with proceedings in Parliament meant proceedings by the Parliament and not actions taken by the government which affect Parliament. If otherwise were the case, then courts could never interfere with tyrannical uses of government power, including the long prorogations that were done by kings in the past. I think that focusing on the point about reviewing the written statements in Parliament is looking at irrelevant detail the dignified constitution if you will not quite no this was more, this was actually this was if anything is more serious because when i was talking about the dignified and efficient i was talking about the crown and and the, the idea of um of the fact that the crown is like a, a a sort of carapace a sort of shell that is stable 
and that is continuous and that allows political discussion to go on underneath. But it's really the crown, that's to do with the crown and the monarch. This to me is more, much more serious, much more serious, because this is interfering in the democratically elected parliament. That's, that's judges stepping in, in the, in the dispute that's going on between the government and the opposition and the, the machinations that were going on with Brexit, the biggest political issue of the day, and they jumped in with both feet into the middle of it. But the, the backlash that's occurred politically um, because of the second Miller case and the Miller, first Miller case to a lesser extent, but really the second Miller case, in my view, um, that backlash ought to serve as a warning that, as Lord Sumption said on, on Newsnight, the former Supreme Court judge, before the decision in the Miller case, Miller 2 case, if they were wise, they would leave well alone the judges. They would not interfere in this prorogation. And then they proceeded to do the opposite um, of, of what he described as the wise course by intervening in the way they did. And the outcome was that the Parliament sat again. There was some questions and various debates that went on, but nothing happened in that remaining period of prorogation that had been set down. Absolutely nothing changed, which means the judges took this enormous step and it had absolutely no effect because there was already an extension mandated by a previous statute. There already was debates scheduled by virtue of the Northern Ireland Act. And so the effect of the judge's decision was almost nothing. But in doing so, they burnt through what, whatever remaining political credit they had in, in, in Whitehall and created a situation now where we have government uh, ministers and, in fact, many backbench and opposition uh, MPs um, who are very concerned, I think, about the potential for judicial interference in future. I do not disagree that court decisions can have political f effects, as indeed all judicial proceedings do have such effects. The question itself can be legal, regardless of its effects. I think that what the court did was not jump into the middle of the dispute, but actually ensure that the dispute could be held in a thorough manner. Given my concept of the hybrid constitution, I think the court has a role in ensuring that disputes can be carried out in parliament. Statutes like the Bill of Rights, which built up the idea of a sovereign parliament, were at stake in my view. The issue here is that parliament's proceedings would have been silenced for an uncharacteristically long period of time until for the 14th of October, at which point the government would have shortened the period of time in which parliament could have considered a deal on which it may have had to vote on before the 30th of October, thus nullifying the requirement of the extension. And this limiting of parliament's scrutiny was done for no good reason. This is a limit on parliamentary scrutiny for no good reason, and the government bullying the democratic process behind a veil of an ill-defined concept of what the people wanted. So, I see the Miller cases, both of them, as the Constitution protecting itself from populism and rejecting populist concepts of legitimacy. The political backlash that occurred from the Miller II decision was a result of where the government had gotten its legitimacy in order to proceed with the prorogation. In both Miller cases, the government abandoned the legitimacy it receives from Parliament and attempted to use the direct democratic legitimacy of the Brexit referendum to sidestep the majoritarian democratic body. The government became the Brexit government, the government of the people, 
It was carrying out Brexit for the people. That's where its legitimacy came from, not from Parliament. And as the government abandoned the legitimacy it received from Parliament, that legitimacy was handed to the courts, which asserted the importance of the majoritarian body scrutiny, i.e. parliamentary sovereignty, in the face of a populist attack. Thus, what we see is how the legal constitution is actually upholding and protecting the political constitution, how the constitution is hybrid. There already was precedent, the prerogative powers and expression of law, which may not be found in statute, but is not beyond the jurisdiction of the court being law. Here, a central constitutional concept which derives from statutes like the Bill of Rights and the principle which in some views legitimacy the primacy, legitimizes the primacy of statute, namely parliamentary sovereignty, was at stake. In my view, the court has a role in protecting this. I personally find the distinction between high policy and low policy very arbitrary. The fact of the matter is that the government should not be allowed to prorogue parliament at a whim in order to bully it and reach a certain political conclusion. That is not the principle of a sovereign parliament. The government itself knew that much when it insisted that prorogation was a normal procedural process to clean the legislative agenda. Well, then it was low policy. The ability to prorogue Parliament indefinitely, of course, except for passing budgets, would be certainly political for political, i.e., for political reasons. Why else would a government prorogue Parliament for a long period of time? But surely the courts would have to intervene if the government decided to prorogue Parliament for months and months on end, only calling it in order to pass a budget. The question, in my opinion, was one of ultraviaries, of illegal power. Government never in, f in the first place had authority to prorogue Parliament, contrary to fundamental principles. Even if it is argued that it would have the power to scrutinize the deal after extension, if an extension was made, the fundamental point remains, in my opinion. Government cannot undermine Parliament's scrutiny for no good reason and prorogue Parliament for no good reason in order to do that. If a fundamental principle is threatened, the legality of it should be scrutinized by courts. The hybrid constitution is one in which the courts and Parliament work together, uphold each other, and maintain order. So, um, so when you say hybrid, all I heard was political constitutions. Because, as I said at the beginning, a political constitution doesn't, has, has no problem with legal restraints. It has no problem with there being courts. It has no problem there being judicial review of government and public bodies' decisions. All of those things are entirely um, within a political constitution. So when you describe the hybrid constitution as being the political elements constitution and the courts working together, that's a political constitution definition. What distinguishes political constitution from a legal constitution is something you, you did mention, sort of, which is who has the last word. I think that's the key distinction. So in a political constitution... A Supreme Parliament has the last word and the courts have to go along with it. To me, in a legal constitution, the courts have the last word. We see that in the United States. Secondly, the uh, Parliament, you said that they abandoned their majority or parliamentary legitimacy. I think the opposite happened because 90% plus of MPs voted for there to be a referendum. Therefore, there was a decision by MPs, which was to a massive majority, to give a decision to the British people. And that decision was then implemented by uh, by the, the government that you called the the, uh, the Brexit government. But by the way, in, in the in the next election after that, 
both the major parties voted to give effect to that referendum. So a vast majority of MPs stood on platforms and manifestos to implement Brexit. So I would strongly disagree with your claim that the government, in some sense, abandoned their majoritarian legitimacy. I would say the opposite is the case. The government were trying to implement the manifestos not only that the majority, uh, that the major, the winning, quote unquote, winning party, because it was a coalition at first and then it was a minority government, um, but actually the Labour, if Labour had won, they were committed to the same outcome, which was Brexit. So um, so I don't agree with you at all that it's somehow a dichotomy between um, a, a sort of a legitimacy granted by Parliament and some kind of populist. I think that's just um, absolutely inconsistent with the facts. And I drew a just distinction between Miller 1 and Miller 2, because in the Miller 2 case, the prorogation was quite literally the centrepiece of the political strategy of the government to try to put pressure on the opposition, to put pressure on the European Union, and to get Brexit done in the teeth of a set of MPs who were acting against the manifestos they'd stood on. So the people who had abandoned the majoritarian principle were the people who were trying to stop the prorogation, the people who were trying to stop the government from having Brexit, the people who tried to pass various acts to extend the uh, date of, of departing from the um, from the European Union, and they did that a couple of times, and they did that through a shadow process. The government's supposed to be drawn from Parliament, they have a majority, bring the government down, install an alternative government, but they couldn't do that, so they passed these acts to extend it, to delay and to delay. So the point of the prorogation was, and the fact that I'm even talking about it in these terms, shows how political this was, and how central to this issue of the in the political constitution the Brexit process was the dominant political issue. But we are defending parliamentary sovereignty. The political constitution means that parliament's wish matters. And in the same way that courts cannot undermine proceedings in parliament, it is not for government to intervene to impose its conception of what the people's political will is on parliament, simply because it thinks that parliament is acting against those wishes. I believe that the holding of an advisory referendum should not be conflated with Parliament's will to leave the EU. Furthermore, leaving the EU does not mean leaving it as soon as possible, and furthermore, leaving should not be binary with staying in the EU. The Miller cases were not about Parliament stopping Brexit, but about ensuring that Parliament could scrutinize the manner in which the UK left, and if a satisfactory was, deal was not reached, to delay until such a deal was reached, a deal satisfactory to Parliament. That is what MPs were doing at that time. That is because the referendum was very much one clear deal of staying in the EU against an unknown of leaving, which could have a million interpretations to the millions who voted for it, which is why the negotiations took so long. Concerning the hybrid constitution, I agree with you that by naming something hybrid, I risk sidestepping the debate. All constitutions are hybrid in a sense and simply lean to different degrees in the legal or political direction. I do not wish to ignore the distinction by naming something hybrid. However, I think that the Miller cases, both of them, demonstrate that no one institution in the UK has the last word on everything. Parliament would not have had the last word on Article 50 and Miller 1 if the courts had not intervened. Parliamentary sovereignty itself as a principle is not solely defined by Parliament and statute, but as a conversation with the courts. The courts themselves pronounce ideas to what parliamentary sovereignty means.
I think that the UK and its living constitution is defined by the multi-institutional dialogue where each institution plays a role in defining and legitimizing the other. The constitution is not calcified by precedent. In my opinion, it is hybrid because no one has the last word on everything, unlike other regimes where one institution may have the last word. I, I completely agree with you that it's, it's, not, it's not even arguable that it's a dialogue, that it's about both both. Um, Parliament and the courts having a role, that it's about the interaction between the two, but it is not possible to avoid the question as to when there's, if there's a dispute, who has the last word? That is an unavoidable question. So you can, you can dress it up as much as you like about dialectic and discourse and both sides having a role. One of them has to have the last word. And if you're a political constitutionist, it's, a, you're, it's Parliament. If you're a legal constitutionalist, it's the judges. So we have to pick one. There's no, there's no, there's no middle ground. There's no hybrid. There's no happy, happy space in between. You have to choose one of those two options. And because I believe in democracy, I choose parliament. Now, that's a harsh version of democracy. Other people say, and you hinted at it earlier, that judges having a role in protecting rights is a different conception of democracy, and that's important. I'm not denying or denigrating that. But... I think Parliament has to have the last word, and I think it has to have the last word because they are the ones who are elected. That's how it works. I tend to disagree that it is a simple binary in the UK. I do not believe that one institution has the last word on everything and every dispute of every type. And I do not believe that democracy could survive if one institution, one capturable institution, had the last word on absolutely everything. However, the beauty of our democracy, however you conceptualize it, is the ability to find different views. I hope that our listeners found this episode enlightening and demonstrating two views on the Constitution and the Miller cases. I sincerely do respect the points that Robert Craig raised, and I do believe that they have made me really rethink and reconsider the way that I view the Miller cases. Now, this brings my three-part series on populism to a close. I'm really glad that all my listeners listened to me on this journey. And if you enjoyed, I hope you'll come along for future journeys with me as well. Thank you very much.